if you are an immigrant two things is very important the status gives you number one either you have money number two or mind right so at the end of the day this is the most important thing Well, hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us here in the caves of Altamira. Uh, before we jump into things, uh, I just wanted to note and offer my sincere appreciation. You may have noticed a pretty awesome track that is now our new theme music, and that was composed and created exclusively for the caves of Altamira by the one and only composer, creator, musician, Jordan Lewis, who is just a phenomenal artist who's worked in all kinds of movies, uh, is currently located in LA. Um, he has tons of credits that I'm not going to go through now. There's too many of them. But my favorite credit is he was the music director for the Warren G documentary uh, that came out a few years back. Uh, so check that out. Um, I will put a link to his website. If by chance any listeners out there are looking for a composer or someone to create music for a host of things, movies, television, video games, what have you, theme songs, like the one created for this show. Uh, as you can see, he just does phenomenal work, or as you can hear, I guess. Uh, so please check out his website if you have a chance. And thanks again so much to Jordan Lewis for taking the time to make this fantastic new theme music uh, for the Caves of Altamira. We greatly appreciate it. So we are back in action today with an excellent guest, uh, Takor Subedi. Uh, we're going to be talking about migration issues with immigration in Asia and East Asia, South Asia more specifically. And also we're going to home in and talk about politics and issues with immigration and labor and, and other factors uh, within the context of South Korea, which is where Dr. Subedi lives. Dr. Subedi has been working in the field of immigration and migration, both academically and uh, in the world of NGOs and other service positions for several decades now, and he just brings a host of experience and research to this topic, and we're just so lucky to have him with us today. One of the reasons I wanted to do this show is that when we think about politics and economics and other issues, social issues in East Asia, uh, we might often think about confrontations between China and Japan or historical issues between Japan and Korea. A lot of the focus might be on people like Prime Minister Modi and India and or the long-running conflict between India and Pakistan, uh, for that matter. What we don't think about often is the rising importance of immigration and migration uh, within the Asian context. And I think that's something I really wanted to highlight and discuss, and I can't think of any better guests than Dr. Subedi. As we're going to see in the discussion, for those who are listening perhaps in the United States or Europe, you might find that even though we are talking about a much different historical, social, political context in some ways, that a lot of the issues involved and the factors involved in migration and immigration play out in East Asia, certainly in their own way, but also have quite a few similar characteristics with issues surrounding immigration and migration within other societies and contexts. So I think that will be a kind of interesting dynamic to keep in mind as our discussion unfolds. Okay, so before turning to the discussion, I'd just like to tell you a little bit about Professor Subedi. 
he is currently an assistant professor at Hanam University in Daejeon in South Korea. His specialty in research and teaching focuses on issues related to international migration, multiculturalism, diaspora transnationalism, migration and development, and also international marriage migration. Uh, he holds a PhD in political science and international relations from Inhai University in South Korea. He also has three master's degrees. He's just a prolific academic in, in terms of his training and knowledge and the diverse fields he brings. Uh, he studied NGO studies and has an MA in NGO studies from Aju University in Korea. He has an MA in rural development from Tribhuvan University in Nepal, and also an MA in English from Tribhuvan University in Nepal. Uh, so we can see that he just brings a vast amount of academic knowledge to this discussion, but also, and I think this is something that makes uh, Professor Subedi such a unique and great opportunity to speak with him, uh, is that he's also carried out a host of professional assignments that I think really give him an idea of kind of some of the on-the-ground, day-to-day experiences, particular to the immigrant labor force within Korea. Uh, he is currently an executive member of the Korean Association for Immigration Policy and Administration. Uh, he is also currently the international director of Korea's International Migration Society. Uh, he has served in the past as an advisor to the Gimpo City Hall and has been a policy monitor with the Korean Immigration Service. So we can see that uh, Professor Subedi just brings a host of academic and real-world experience to these topics that I think you're going to see really gives him some interesting insights and perspectives on these issues. So without further ado, let's get to the discussion. Okay, Tokor Subedi, welcome so much to the Caves of Altamira. It's great to have you. Thank you very much, and good afternoon from Korea. All right. Um, how's everything going for you today? Yeah, so far going well. Among all the people I've met in Korea, you have one of the most interesting stories. And, and to be honest with you, Subedi, I've known you for years. Um, I'm not sure if I really know the full story, so I'm, I'm interested <laughs> to hear this. Okay, so you want to say the what is behind the curtain, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yes, uh, let me draw the curtain here. Uh, yes, this is the question many people actually ask me because uh, mostly when you think to go for the like uh, abroad study, basically being, people think that going to the United States or maybe the European countries. So why Korea? So that, that is the main reason that really uh, hints many people to think about uh, why uh, he I came to Korea. So yeah, speaking frankly, uh, I was working at an NGO before I came here. So uh, during the time, what I found, the NGO has a really good scope, particularly like developing countries like Nepal, uh, where you can have a good opportunity for your further career. And when I look around, I could not find any courses uh, that I could find, uh, particularly that of my interest. So uh, when I also met many people uh, while working at that NGO, I could not find anybody who really graduated from that NGO background. So it was a kind of a dream for me uh, to get a degree in NGO and go back to Nepal. So I was looking for uh, those kind of courses. And uh, without much effort, I quickly found that Aju University uh, in Suwon. So they, mm. they provided a uh, master's degree in NGO studies. And that was also in English because it was... Uh, 
what we call graduate school of international studies so i applied there and suddenly very quickly i was accepted and it took no time for me to uh, just come to korea so it was a kind of uh, very much quick decision although i had thought it for like long but uh, at the end it, it was so quickly i came uh, to korea did uh, my ngo degree and then i realized oh i already have uh, three master degrees because two i already had before when i was in nepal and then why not i go for a phd so while <laughs> i was uh, studying and during my uh, during my contact with many foreign workers uh, at the beginning of my days so it also uh, change my position that i really wanted to know something about uh, immigration so i was looking for some university which can provide me uh, that is the courses or the major which is closely related to uh, migration or multiculturalism like that and luckily i found uh, some courses at ina university but those courses were under the department of political science and international relation so with the uh, um, my statement of purpose uh, writing in the background of migrant labor or migrant workers and then i applied and uh, i got accepted and then uh, i started my phd and that i finished in 2013 so that was the major reason uh, that uh, i actually came i was supposed to go back but uh, just to do my phd and my a new interest in migrant worker actually pushed me to uh, do the political science degree right that's a uh, you know and i guess everyone has their own kind of tale of this but it is a very common uh, story you hear from expats in korea um i was supposed to go back in a year or two right and right <laughs> you'll find many of us there 7 8 9 10 years uh, how how long have you lived in korea now ah uh, this is exactly my 15th year 15th year yeah. right Um, now, uh, just to circle back a little bit, uh, what NGO were you working at when you you said you were working at an NGO? And uh, actually, in Nepal, I was working for an NGO that was uh, working uh, for the protection of children's rights. So mm. uh, I was working actually in the background, going to the field, and uh, not like officially because uh, even in Nepal, I was uh, teaching. That my right. job, major job, was teaching, but uh, at side job. I was working with some group of the people working for uh, children's right so I develop a kind of affinity with those uh, NGO groups at the same time the NGO people and I I just wanted to have a degree and uh, go back and do the such kind of job Right and you you're very humble so I'm sure you wouldn't uh, just mention this yourself but I should note that Subedi um unlike myself uh, sadly speaks excellent Korean and has really put the time into oh, well, master the language so uh, <laughs> as you know we used to joke um sometimes that can make more of a burden for you uh, living in Korea right having you know, Oh man no <laughs> Oh Subedi you speak Korean you can do x y and z right so <laughs> Okay. Uh so one of the first things I wanted to ask you about and this is I think related to both your experiences in the NGO world and and your research and academic work ties together uh is just thinking about this issue of labor and migration in Asia and, and I guess particularly in like South and Southeast Asia and East Asia more particularly, right? I think one thing that's interesting is uh we use Asia a lot of times um without being clear because uh you know that could include you know, right. Lebanon or Iran. That's um, true. But I guess we're going to be looking at mostly um South Asia 
I guess, where you're originally from and Southeast Asia and East Asia, China, Korea, Japan, and thinking about some of the bigger pictures involving labor and migration in, in this area of the world. Um, so any, any thoughts you have or, or insights? Yes. Uh, if we look maybe the historically, uh, so mostly the people, uh, we define them in like several categories, as we mentioned uh, many times, like high skill, or then we have the semi-skill migration, and then obviously unskilled migration. Uh, so up to now, what we have seen, uh, mostly the European countries and the United States, uh, or we call the Western countries or the first world, it's very difficult to have access for like common people. So mm. basically the high skill uh, people, they can move. And the second one, uh, semi-skill, like we consider as like uh, students because uh, when they enter there, they get certain kind of uh, knowledge. And after that, they can also become uh, very much uh, high skill, like in many developed countries. In, in Korean cases, or maybe you can see in most of the Asian cases, except like in Japan, hmm. uh, I think uh, technically, Japan, these days also Korea. And uh, although we have, we talk quite often about like uh, Hong Kong, or we talk about uh, Taiwan to some extent, or Singapore definitely, but uh, it's very difficult because of so much uh, competition and uh, uh, so much uh, difficulties for having the access for general people. I think you are in Japan, I'm in Korea. We also know that uh, it's very difficult to have access without uh, having knowledge of the Korean language or of the Japanese language. So in the mm. Taiwan, it goes the same story. So because of these things, the market becomes very much limited. So mostly people, they find very easy to go, particularly like Middle East or maybe uh, some part of Asia. But uh, Asia, like it is not like in the past where we have uh, north, uh, south to north migration. These days we have seen it's all about, like mostly about south-south migration. And uh, yeah, technically, I also believe that. Uh, migration is all about uh, the people move because the general theory also tells that you move because you get more benefit there. You think you can uh, utilize your resources there. Uh, there are many, uh, many obstacles at your home in your home countries. Uh, it can be political, economical or sociocultural, whatever it is. So people move for so many different reasons. But obviously, uh, the major reason up to now is stands is the economic reason. So, Stupidy, if yes. I can if I can interrupt you for a moment, uh, just yes. for our listeners, you mentioned that you know um, rather than thinking about it just as a south to north um, pattern of migration, that increasingly it's becoming south to south. Um, yes. Could you kind of explain that a little bit more? What you mean by that? Uh, what I mean, like before, most of the people they used to go to many uh, Western countries, but today we see it's not only people moving from uh, like southern part or maybe the, from developing countries to developed countries. But if you look at these days, people moving back to China, moving back to India. So there are so many other new markets that open up. So it is not only what we saw before. So the trend has very much changed today. So this mm. is what I was talking. So, but it's still. How you live, that is more important. So you, you are in Japan, you have also seen there are many uh, foreign workers, but less than Korea, because right. the Japanese immigration system is very different than uh, what we have here in Korea. However, you can still see those people working as semi-skilled, skilled or unskilled. It's also mm. there, and you are also one of them. And for me, I'm also one of them. So sure. what I believe uh, personally or my experiences 
it's all about the money. Where the money is, there are the opportunities and people move there. Think about historically, maybe we start with Spain or maybe Holland and then people went to UK, then to the United States. Yes, even today, United States, but definitely the trend will go back to China soon. It looks like because the market is there, opportunity is there, right? So, right. so this is why uh, it's like traditionally what we call north, uh, south to north migration. It is turning into uh, both ways these days. So, yes, Korea is also one of the part of that. If you just look like 1960s, 70s, from the rack to riches, Korea has, who expected, like the people uh, who were used to go abroad, even during the 1980s and 90s, and now they just invite people from outside. Right. Just 20, um, 30 years, right? <laughs> sure. I yeah. mean, yeah, in the 60s, especially in the 70s during the construction boom. Yes, um, yes, 17, 18, the construction boom. Yeah, people going to the Middle Eastern countries and the nurses going to the Germany, right? right. Look, these people. And I think uh, to some extent, if you look uh, how the Philippines doing, using with their semi-skilled nurses, training them in home and then pro like uh, sending them abroad with so much education. So they are mm -hmm. just uh, gaining and they're going, to uh, they, they're going to have a lot of benefit out of there. It's not only like remittance, but also when people move outside, they bring so many skills. Yeah, and one, and one thing that came to mind hearing you talk in terms of these areas of prosperity and wealth um, and the role they play in attracting or um, shaping migrational flows. I mean, certainly one of the uh, biggest patterns of migration probably that has, you know, one of the largest human migrations maybe in history, at least in the last 20 or 30 years for sure, has been from um, central and western China to eastern China. Um, yes. A lot of the migration takes place um, within one country, but are still... That's true. Even Nepal too. Nepal too. The country is small, but because it has much to do with the geographical disparities. So the people have no choice but to move on. Right. Um, so, what, well, what are what are some trends in Nepal in terms of migration? I think uh, if you look internal migration, so it still it takes a place uh, very uh, very fast even these days because people living in those uh, before in the mountains then move to the hills and now they want to move to the southern part, which is lowland region where you can have a very good agriculture, cultivated land. Right. So it's mm -hmm. all about the opportunities again. Uh, I think this is the similar thing that happen happening uh, in India right now. I think China achieved much more already. However, it's still it's going on there. So mm. when we move international migration, so from Nepal's perspective, we can see most of the people even today they go to work in India, and many Indians also come to work in. Nepal. So it because we we have open border, so we always have historically uh, it's there. Like it looks like a, a similar cultural thing, but uh, divided mm. into two countries, right? So right. it's an open border thing uh, makes it very difficult to determine how many Nepalese actually live in India. And the other problem is you can just go there, live there. Nobody asks you and you come here. It's the same thing. So the data is not available. So even like we have the word called NRN, non-resident Nepalese people, like similarly non-resident Indians they use. So hmm. you, you have the data. But... Uh, those group actually do not include the people living in South Asia because we don't have the real data. People just move around and when they come, when they go. So how can you control that? Because they use right. land, buses, trains, right? 
<laughs> so no, in, in in some ways, what this harkens back to, and this is something um, you know, when I teach classes on politics and okay. particularly talking about borders and 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 how we think about the world, I, I always tell students that you know one of the most deceptive things they look at in terms of their understanding of the political world is the the famous globe with all the little colored countries. Yes. Um, it gives this idea of, of a kind of rigidity that uh, is often far more complicated on the ground. And your, just your brief discussion there of life on the Nepali-Indian um, border brings that to light. It's one thing to say, this is India and this is Nepal. But as, you, as you're saying that, um, this harkens back to, um, for much of human history, uh, right. borders were far less defined. And, and, and in many places, they continue to be far less defined um, than one would gather from looking at a map, right? And, right, I, and I think right. your description where... So only uh, the map clarifies where you are. Otherwise, you actually don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and I remember, you know, we, we, we um, our colleague Rahul, who was from um, northern India and you were right. from southern Nepal, you shared um, a dialect. That's true. Um, a linguistic dialect. I, I yeah. remember that was interesting. Um, so <laughs> there's even some um, linguistic overlaps, right? I where, think, uh, like, except if, if you go to some of the European countries or maybe some Latin American countries, these things become so very unique. <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, so um, on, on that note, one thing that you mentioned uh, that I wanted to kind of dig into a little bit more was there is... Uh, and I think it is important to note that a lot of migration in Asia um, right. is South to South migration. And, and, and in some ways that you can see that replicated, you mentioned Latin America um, and other places in, in the world where there is migration from, say, um, Central America to Mexico or um, within South America, right? Um, right. For sure. And, and I think you mentioned those patterns, particularly you can see that also in Southeast Asia. But But one kind of abiding similarity that I think stretches across all of these is locations of wealth, pockets of wealth, right? So much migration in the world today, be it from North Africa to Europe, um, right. from Southeast Asia to Australia, um, and, and in some ways, the, the, you know, these horrific events of people drowning and, and making right. these really perilous journeys is rooted in a desire to um, attain, obtain access to these dense pockets and collections of, of wealth. And in, and in Asia, particularly East Asia, you know, you're really looking at South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, yes, uh, Singapore. Uh, you know, right. it depends. You know, some people would include Australia now in in yes. Asia. You know, so you have these kinds of areas, and despite the rise of of you know, as you mentioned, South to South migration, there still is a lot of migrational patterns driven on people trying to get or move from the Philippines or South Asia or Southeast Asia to Korea and Japan. Uh, and I think that's something that those in Europe and the United States especially uh, may not realize how much this is increasingly shaping the politics, particularly of places like Korea and Japan that have this issue of a kind of vision of themselves as homogeneous and, and um, a kind of ethnic homogeneity as a kind of central feature or defining feature of, of how they see themselves culturally or historically. And, and these are general tendencies. This is, I'm not saying this is how everyone views it, but these are kind of common tendencies you'll find in these countries with this aging population and, uh, and a need for right. a younger and, and more vigorous kind of workforce to help maintain current standards of living, but also a, a deep political and, and perhaps even kind of cultural reticence to accepting large amount of foreign migrants. And um, I'm kind of 
interested in in what you think about this in terms of Asia more broadly and and perhaps even in the case of Korea and your experiences there. So what I believe, like no matter we talk about globalization, no matter we talk about the liberals concept, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, it is the concept of nation state that really works in the background. So mm. we always have to keep in that mind. Uh, and particularly uh, if it is like a homogeneous society, so there is some additional effect that we call preventing the ethnicity or our the preventing the blood, something uh, like protecting the blood. So such kind of a concept uh, is very strong in Japan and Korea as well. And uh, definitely once if uh, China becomes uh, a kind of immigrant society in coming days, I think uh, it's also going to play a bigger role there as well. Uh, however, uh, if you look uh, some of the very much immigrant country like uh, Singapore, that's something uh, even I was surprised. Like I also uh, had a chance to travel some of the countries. And uh, I think uh, in the U.S., I also did not really feel like I'm a foreigner because nobody asked me, luckily, mm. because it, it was not not my long stay if I lived there, maybe I know. Just as a traveler for a couple of weeks, uh, Singapore was the only country in Asia where I really felt that I'm not a foreigner. I just felt like I'm a part of that because the people were so diverse there and nobody caring others like in the U.S. You, they don't care, right? But in the U.S., what you can see Maybe mostly the white people, black people, some Latinos and Asians. So these are the majorities we see. But in Singapore, most of the people that, that look like the Asian origin, which I am. So I always felt I'm a part of that. So that may be the reason my identity was so easily, uh, I think, dissolved when I look at those people. <laughs> so I never right. realized that uh, I'm a foreigner a a anymore there. However... This is going to play a big role whenever it comes to a homogeneous society like Korea. For instance, as I am living, speaking frankly, I never had a problem. And uh, even I had a chance to move uh, to other countries, but I never thought about that because I spent a lot of time here. I know a lot of people. So I feel the most convenient to live here. Speaking frankly, even I feel more convenient here than my country. It is because I've been living here for a long time. That is the main reason. Like since I left, many things changed. Although I just go there, I visit there a couple of uh, times a year, but that is not enough for me to integrate into the society back again. So things have changed dramatically. But here I have seen the changes. So I have myself already adjusted according to the need and according to the system. So definitely I feel comfortable here. So, right. so even it is a homogeneous society, I feel comfortable at personal level. But the moment you go out, the moment you see the crowd, and then you realize, oh, I'm a foreigner because everybody looks different than you. And so this thing really uh, going to, yeah, to some people it's going to hurt. To some people it's going to make them just aware that you are not a part of that society. So this is really going to play a big role in most of the immigrants in Korea. From the government perspective, there is no problem, but it is how you feel. Because Korea, this is just the first generation immigrant. They're just the beginning. So they do mm. not have a history like the European countries or United States for like 100 years. This is just the 20, 30 years they started to accept a foreigner. 
so definitely it will take time so definitely they have to change uh, if the generation the next generation comes i think uh, many foreigners will feel much more comfortable so from the political point of view i think the government always try to make a pitch their one population first no matter right. what kinds of government you have and mostly in homogeneous society like uh, you are american so you know uh, maybe those liberals we call here are actually conservatives in the united states isn't it right. because in homogeneous society this is the same thing mm. at the end of the day you look same you have the same you share the same cultural affinity so that means you are one so in the in the us or in the canada maybe you can say oh you are nepalese then you can say oh you are american you are chinese you are british right but in korea is still quite often we hear or maybe in japan the same thing you hear the same word just the two words they define right normally we use wegugin and negugin right mm. so that yeah. means uh, means the others and self isn't it so a kind <laughs> of a feeling there we 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 are not going to interpret that in theoretical form however in general if you just think that means you also feel yourself that you are not a part of that so this is integration or assimilation issues but as a homogeneous society they have no choice because they cannot change everything it takes time people's mind has to change the generation has to change so that we have to wait and see <laughs> well the, the, yeah and uh, a few things that came up to mind uh, hearing you uh, reflect upon what it is like to live as a foreign resident in Korea and, and, and especially over the long term. And I would have to echo um, your experience. I only lived there for seven years, uh, but um, I generally got on pretty well. And, and he said there, there are these moments where it is made clear to you that you're kind of outside of the community uh, in, in some ways, but uh, nothing that I ever found um, disagreeable or, or anything too uh, difficult. But one thing I, I think is was fascinating to me too, is you, you mentioned the kind of the concept of Weigukin um, is uh, the Korean term for foreigner and kind of roughly translates into like outside right. person. What, what I always found interesting is that when Korean um, people travel often, like say they go to Canada or Europe, right? They would yes. look around and say, "There, look at all of these Weigukins, right? right? That the 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 idea of Koreanness is 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 mobile, right? That yes. um, and in in a way that um, and I'm not. This isn't a criticism or even you know. It's just uh, to me sociologically kind of interesting. Like uh, if I go to Nepal, I would say, wow, I'm an American in Nepal. Like I'm a white person, yes. American in Nepal. And so I'm the, but I, but I think, it, you know, when Koreans travel, especially in groups, it's still like um, the, out, the, you know, it's still like a, a country full of Weigukins. <laughs> so. Yes, yes. Until 1980s and even like early 90s, right? Early 90s, many Koreans, they were not that much exposed to the outside world. So that means they had a kind of uh, different kind of uh, thinking. So if you look at the new generation, they are mm. very much comfortable with the foreigner. Like I can give you one example. When I, when I was traveling on train uh, around 2006 and seven when I came to Korea earlier. So uh, like the, mostly the older people, they were just looking or staring at me because I was a foreigner. And uh, unfortunately or fortunately, uh, most likely I was the only person on the train. That was also possible. So that means I was became a, a, a place or I can say an object to watch because I was, they did not have seen people like me. But as I lived these days, 
even if you go to very countryside, maybe you hardly see anybody staring at you because you are a foreigner, because they are used to it. So that means it's not the Korean people's fault. It's that something that's new happening and over time it changed. So they are now started to accepting uh, people, recognizing uh, them as well, right? Because when we say uh, making a multicultural society, we always uh, have to consider three major elements. Number one, the existence of diversity. Number two, the acceptance of diversity. And then we have to also think about the promotion of diversity. So in Korean cases, there is existence because foreigners are here, 2.5 million almost, right? That's a big number. Obviously, the long-term residents are uh, very few than that, but it's still people living around Korea are 2.5 million. That makes around 5% of the Korean population. So this is one thing. And then the Korean government, they have no discrimination for foreigner in terms of law. And many people, they also know their responsibility or their duties towards foreigner. So they are legally accepted. They have a kind of system through which if you go, you can live here without any problem. Acceptance is there. So what comes the problem here is still the promotion. Because this country, as we mentioned, homogeneous country like Japan you live. So it becomes very difficult. How can you promote the other culture, which is a very small in number? If you find like 2.5 million out of 180 or 90 countries, how will you promote them, right? So that's why most of the homogeneous countries, their system is basically assimilation because it's very difficult to make integration there, right? Where will you integrate? If you integrate in this kind of circumstances, it is it looks like a kind of discrimination itself, isn't it? You know, one time I was teaching in uh, one elementary school. So they had uh, multicultural edu uh, like kids. So they were teaching them separately. So this was a kind of, actually their plan was to, st to avoid uh, the discrimination of the Korean student, but actually they were showing to the Korean student that they are different, right? Mm. Look, so this is, it's just interpretation. But what I understand, they are trying their best and the, the life has become very easy here compared to the past. And definitely becoming a multicultural concept or multicultural society, it takes time and we have no choice but to wait and see. Right. No, and, and I think um, in, in terms of you mentioned the kind of promotion of this, it, it's been fascinating for me to see the kind of arc of this. Um, a lot of the research I did for my dissertation and, and some of the work I'm still doing now okay. uh, looks at Segehua, which is okay. the Korean term for right. globalization and beginning in the 90s. And this yes. effort to Segehua, actually a huge component of this was, a, was an attempt to, I guess, literally change the public's mindset about yes foreigners yes. and about you know these promotional campaigns That's to true. be more accepting um interestingly my wife was uh, affected by this in terms of the education curriculum that oh, okay. up until the 1990s one of the core aspects of korean base you know national curriculum was to learn that koreans are um, one of the most pure homogeneous races in the world right. or the most pure um, right. that was removed from the curriculum so there has been these promotional efforts, but I guess what I wanted to kind of dig in a little bit more deeply is in terms of how 
in terms of migration and particularly in countries like Korea or Japan and wealthier countries, and this is some way similar to even places in the United States or Europe, these zones of high prosperity, as I like to to think about them and um, people attempting to gain access is that um, there tends to be a kind of bifurcation between perhaps people like me or you who are in positions to be accepted in terms of, you know, legally accepted in terms of being granted work visas, which is central to this as people with quote unquote high skills. Um, you know, uh, we're political scientists. I don't know. <laughs> we're not, we're certainly not engineers or anything, but we yeah. are, our visas um, allow us to live and work in Korea or Japan under these rules permitting people who have quote unquote high skills, right? Mm. That obviously is a is a minority, but then you have the vast majority of people are permitted uh, under situations often temporary that tend to be granted work visas to work in what would be called quote unquote the most low skill um, I, I don't like the term low skill labor. Yes. I, it, it rubs me the wrong way. But in terms of working in particularly agriculture or in very labor labor intensive manufacturing mm. in terms of textiles and, and very hard intensive manufacturing. And certainly my or your experiences since we do have some social capital in terms of our educational background and position is, is, is significantly different than perhaps groups um, of people who uh, work in these um, other positions in society within the economic order and often in much more low paid um, and kind of tenuous positions. And I, I think you have some, uh, you know, I know you have uh, experience working with people in these situations um, from the Nepali labor community and, and elsewhere. And, and so that to me seems to be a, a real kind of another angle to this in terms of how people's contributions or or how they kind of fit in or the respect they receive within society is largely contingent upon what kind of work they do or what status they have in terms of the labor force within Korea. Um, and certainly people who tend to come largely, they said there's a large group of people from Nepal, um, from Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, working in Korea in these positions from the Philippines as well um, as a large community. And what issues do they have? Because I think um, in some ways they they uh, have quite a bit more significant issues perhaps than our experiences perhaps. So uh, if we uh, go through what happened in Korea, most likely we have to start with the 1980s. So particularly, you can say maybe the early 1990s, so that can be the better uh, term, when uh, many companies were set up and when they opened for like uh, outside market, but actually they did not try to just control the people. So the people started to come to Korea because there were many opportunities uh, particularly, there were many opening up many companies or small and medium-sized companies, but basically those. So what happened when the people came here, they found the job, they just settled down here. This is what happening in the beginning. So the government has no plan. But what happened, the number grew more and more and more. So now they have no choice but to regulate it. Otherwise, uh, when we have undocumented people, it's very difficult to figure it out, uh, what kinds of problems they can bring to the society. And I think that America is also very much uh, serious on that uh, always. So in Korean cases, it is small country, homogeneous country, very much a strong cultural bond at the time. So these people were going to be very dangerous for them from that perspective. So they try to make it something systematic. So they introduced 
the visa they call uh, what we call yon so segment trainee visa so mm. trainee visa that means the people uh, they find some like uh, middleman so the middleman always work between uh, the company and some uh, people working uh, some people who is from where the labor was supposed to come so the middleman took a lot of money and then people were brought from many countries particularly developing countries so they paid a huge money to come to korea but according to the law when they came they were denied of actual of payment so so the, there were also reason for example if you are a trainee so that means you are not going to get the the salary of the worker because you are just a trainee so the two years you work as a trainee and one year you get as a worker so in three years you could not make enough money right? right so you paid huge money to come there and now you don't have enough money so what will you do because after three years you have no choice but to go back so you become undocumented so the process of being undocumented grew and grew and grew and around 2001 almost 80 90 percent people those workers became undocumented can you imagine that <laughs> that's a huge right but it's not only problem with the undocumented because when you become undocumented now your human rights going to be violated you have no right to claim anywhere because your status is not there so there were a lot of movement also many movement labor movement but the good thing was that the korean uh, labor organization and many other uh, non-government organizations like civil society organizations, they all supported this movement and that was actually led by the Korean at the beginning and then it became very much huge successful. So I think Kim uh, Dae-jung, uh, I guess, during uh, when the World Cup was just going to be held, during the time most of these people were given amnesty. So that was, uh, the amnesty was on the contact that you should go back and you can come back again so many people they utilize that and then the wait so now the government already knew they have to change the system very quickly to adopt these huge number of foreign workers because korea was going to need a lot of these people to sustain its economy to sustain its mid, what we call middle and small industries but at the same time they have to regulate the people so it just went on and by the time the eps system they started that is called employment permit system in 2003 uh, when it uh, uh, launched then after that most of these problems were solved because now the people the worker can change their company at least three times uh, in their period and their stay is going to be like instead of just uh, uh, three years it is now four years ten months uh, ten months and if you go back and after a certain period you can come back for again four year and ten months so many things that made it very easy so what i remember clearly is that uh, during 2007-8 i was also working at uh, one ngo in korea and that was actually immigrant center so i had to visit many companies to ask their owner to give these workers their salaries like many people were not given salaries many people they had problem with their accident or insurance so we did a lot of work a lot of work for that well, what, what kind of response because this is gets into stuff that you know I'm, I'm interested in at least in in terms of my own 
research projects uh, and in the kind of attitudes of employers in Korea, not just towards um, immigrant labor, but towards labor overall. So I'm curious, when you went and did this advocacy work, what kind of responses did you get from the employers? Yes, basically, uh, what I found, uh, when the foreign workers come to work here, they are given training. Like you can do this kind of thing, you cannot do this kind of thing. So if this kind of problem happens, you have to go these places like that. Even today, it works. It, it they do. However, they also were supposed to give some training to the owners, the company owners, means what they can do with the workers and what they cannot. But these things were missing there. So in most of the cases, this company owner they were not really uh, known about the how they are going to regulate those foreign workers so it is a lack of information or lack of communication or lack of knowledge from their part they did not do or just because of like uh, certain issues that happen maybe they did not like the worker the way he did not or she did not so that means they just did not want to give them the salary they just try to save their money as well so depending on how big the company is depending on what kind of owner the company has at the same time, depending on what kinds of uh, education this person had. So it was very much a different situation. However, even though the owner, they did many like mistreatment to their workers, but because the law is very strong in Korea, almost mm -hmm. everybody, they received their compensation, almost all, except in a few rare cases. So that means once they were like reminded of some issue that's going to happen to them, once they were reminded of their responsibility, so there was no problem. So mostly <laughs> it handled. So well, I mean, like to translate there, it seems like once they were threatened with um, right, legal that's action. True. Yeah, that's true, yes. Because <laughs> you're then, very, being very kind, quote right, unquote, what reminded they thought, of their... <laughs> what in general, these people thought that if I don't give them the work, they have no choice but to go back. They become illegal and so it's over. So this is what they're thinking. But like uh, these days, the law has become more and more uh, important and very much influential. So uh, speaking frankly, uh, like after the EPS system was implemented, so I think 2007-8, after that, it was fully implemented because D3 was already gone. So after that, very few problems, very few. And today, uh, speaking true, I don't think I get any call for those kind of things, <laughs> even not a single call. <laughs> well, that's excellent. I mean, it's, so that it's means great. the Korean government is doing a wonderful job from this point of view, right? Mm. Or, or at least at a minimum, um, yes. it seems that major significant strides have been made. Yes, so much improvement. Yeah, because uh, the reason I do not actually blame uh, the Korean policy maker is because. Everything happens uh, quickly, but still they are able to handle it. So I rather appreciate because whenever they see a chance, they try. But we always know that this is happening first time. So there will be many try and error. So this is what's happening. Right. Well, and I think hearing this too, and, and I, you know, have, I guess I moved from Korea in 2015. So it seems even since I've moved, um, quite a bit has been done in this regards. And I haven't maybe kept up with it as, as much as I would have liked, uh, in terms of the advance of, of policies in this area. But it seems that there's a lot of logistical growing pains involved and social and cultural barriers and in, in, in some sort of adjustments and learning involved. And from what you're saying, it seems that Korea has at least made some significant inroads in this way. And 
all those ways um, I wanted to kind of compare within Japan. This is was something that the um, now former Abe administration was keen to try to push forward with was some sort of overhaul of the immigration system, yes. uh, where you know Japan has very similar situation in terms of a vast, you know, rapidly um, aging society and right. huge portion of the population over 65. And there was some recognition of uh, the need to, and, and this is something that I, you know, I teach Japanese students. This is something they constantly bring up. But uh, even amongst the students, like you were mentioning, you know, there's some generational overturn, but uh, I, I don't, I'm not, this isn't a scientific kind of sample, but at least in my anecdotal experience, I find that um, even amongst um, students and and perhaps even more kind of progressive leaning students, you find a at least here a, a, a still um, reticence to have a large foreign population, mm. right? They're not against foreigners as like all foreigners are bad, but there is a certain concern, I guess, is a, is a, a kind of neutral way to put it, that having large influx of foreign population. And there's one thing that's interesting in Japan that I wasn't you know, very familiar with until I moved here was that one kind of end around they tried to do in terms of having a migrant labor population, perhaps staffing jobs that the um, local population was no longer willing to do, which is a, a theme in, in wealthier countries around the world, uh, was to have a return migration of the ethnically Japanese people from Brazil. Okay. Um, so there's, you know, in the 1980s, yeah, there was a problem. Right. And, and what struck me is, is interesting is you mentioned Kim Dae-jung, who did a lot of good things um, in, in his own right. But one thing that was very controversial that he tried to do struck me as similar was that when they were um, coming up with the guest worker program, mm. uh, they initially tried to give a certain preference to the um, what they're called the Joseon Jok mm. population, the Korean ethnic Koreans living in Northeast um, China. Mm. And the, again, the idea was, well, these people are ethnically Korean. So they will blend in better, um, which is a do, you know, so, and I think that was the kind of theory behind the Brazilian, ethnically Japanese Brazilians was that they, well, they're, they're ethnically still similar. So they should, and of course, in both cases, those, those were, yeah. they didn't bear out to be true. Right. But I, yes. I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting to try to say, well, we want, we need a younger, more population to work often in jobs that the local population is increasingly unable due to age or unwilling to do due to whatever they, you know, their education level or so forth. How can we do this, but also maintain this kind of mythos yeah. of ethnicity? And then so in Japan, you have this return migration or of, of eligibility for ethnically J Japanese in, in Brazil um, and in Korea, the, the Joseon joke population in China was yeah. targeted. So I, I don't know. I find that is a, is a kind of interesting um, response to that. But I think in because you're from Nepal, it, it, I w and when I visited Tokyo, um, the several times I visited there, I bumped into um, quite a few Nepalese working uh, in convenience stores. Mm. Right. And, and, and in some ways, this struck me because you mentioned in Korea, they tried this notion of like the training program. And that still is the the default in Japan. I, mm. I, I think they've come up with a new program recently, but up until very recently, basically, technically, there wasn't supposed to be any, uh, particularly in terms of lower paid jobs, mm. uh, migrant labor in Japan. Hmm. Right, they were, they were only going to be trainees. So you'd have people working as full-time nurses who were quote-unquote right. trainees, or you have these folks from Nepal working in you know in convenience stores 
that are literally there as trainees. I mean, which is, sounds ridiculous, right? So I, I, th- I think there was another interesting similarity with Japan in terms of trying to make this more politically tenable by mm-hmm. saying, oh, they're, they're trainees. They're not, uh, they're not foreign workers, right? And, and as you mentioned, that leaves them in often a kind of legal state of limbo, right? Where mm-hmm. they don't have any sort of official rights to demand compensation or demand payment or demand the right to change jobs. Uh, and so that, and I think Japan has slowly offered some new programs where people can apply to mm. have foreign labor come to specific pre- prefectures, but mm. um, technically still the vast majority of people working in these um, non-professional positions as, mm. as foreign labor in, in Japan are there as quote-unquote um, trainees. So I, I think that's another interesting similarity. Yes, I think uh, I agree uh, with you. But uh, if you look uh, in terms of uh, those Japanese people coming from uh, like Brazil or Latin America, particularly those, I think they call Nikkei people, right? So mm. these Nikkei people and and also the Japanese people coming from the developed countries. So maybe they have uh, two categories there. Uh, in Korea, they actually have uh, one more, like uh, uh, Chosun and then we call those uh, uh, Kyopo, like you mentioned, the coming from the America, Canada, like that. And mm-hmm. then they also have one category coming from the Russia and the Far East. Uh, however, uh, because their goal is to, since we need a foreigner, there is no choice because our population is very low and the aging population is very high and economy we have to sustain. So they need a foreigner. So definitely having a living in a homogeneous society or having a notion of like one blood. So I think this is the main reason they always give preferences to uh, their one uh, people, uh, like uh, people who are ethnically uh, the same. Uh, but the problem is that when you are giving similar preferences, but still there is a discrimination that occurs between Chosanjok and Kyopo, and also the people coming from the Russia and the Far East, because because of two things, right? It's always two things. If you are an immigrant, two things is very important. The status gives you number one, either you have money, number two, or mind, right? Mm. So at the end of the day, this is the most important thing. So they had a different treatment. So just one example I can also give you from Korea. Like recently they have uh, some rules. Like if you are uh, due to corona, uh, if you are going back to your country or some other countries, and if you have to come back, you have to do the reentry system. If you look there, you know those people who are uh, like uh, Korean ethnics, uh, they have a ch- they can just uh, come without uh, those reentry. But even if you are a permanent residents, you mm-hmm. have no choice. If you look from the perspective of the power of the visa, number one powerful visa in terms of visa is the permanent residence. Yes. Right, because you are allowed to do everything, but still you can't do that. So this also tells a kind of ethnic. A priority. So such kind of concept, maybe it doesn't make, it, it is very much criticized academically, but from the practical line, they have to be, uh, I think, very much support from the local people, 
because it's their people, isn't it? So such kind of political things, uh, quite often we see uh, comes from the perspective of those uh, nation state because uh, at the end of the day, it's my people and my country. So this is what we need to think. Uh, but uh, in terms of these uh, low-level people, the lower you go, the less uh, access you have. This is very true, always. Like mm. as a professor, you have very powerful visa. If you move down, if you're a researcher, you have more limitation. If you go down, you are a worker, you have more limitation, right? Something. Right. So it's all about that. <laughs> and I think, yeah, especially, um, you know, that's something that you see play out um, living as an immigrant, um, as we have the status uh, that is connected to the visa you hold, how long you're able to hold right. that, you know, how long it lasts for, um, whether you're going to be eligible for permanent residency. Mm. Um, all of these things are in some ways really mark out what your allow quote unquote allowed That's to do or, or the power yeah. or the standing you have within society and that right. obviously people who are coming on these training programs or even these temporary visas just look like a visa but actually it is a politics it's a power relation right it exists there on that note maybe one thing i maybe just for the the listeners and even myself um you have a lot of experience working with you know the increasingly large nepali immigrant community within korea mm-hmm. and what of course, it's it's hard to say. So maybe this is a, a hard question. But on on average, what are the reasons that people come to Korea? What kind of experiences do they have? And and does it end up because I guess uh, ostensibly they're there to to make money, right? I, I think most yeah, people are not. That, that's the sense. Yeah. So does. Does, does this generally work out? I mean, what kind of, you know, do they come for a short time? Do they want to stay long term? What kind of jobs do they do? Uh, and so forth. Like how, what's the road? Um, you you had a, a, perhaps your own road, but what for most people, if you want, if you're living in Nepal and you want to kind of come and work in Korea and try to make some money to send home or save up, what's your path to, to doing that? Yeah, I think uh, for most of these people, so they come from, lower class, uh, lower middle class, because uh, in theory, we say the lowest class, they can't migrate, right? So uh, we talk about lower class, lower middle class, or maybe uh, some people, upper middle class. So these kind of people, they always want to have social uprising, always. So as a result, they look for some opportunity. And because uh, Nepal has been in a kind of crisis for a long. Uh, They had a huge civil war, and after that, even the democracy there is still in transition. Always the government is uh, impending sometimes. Mm. So there is nothing well established. So the job market is gone. So everywhere uh, you do not see hope. It's a kind of a failure state uh, in in technical terms. I think uh, uh, on paper it is not failed, but if I have to say as a political scientist or a political economist, I say it is already a failed state. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, always economy is number one. And uh, this one clearly justifies, if you just uh, look, almost 20 to 23% of the GDP is covered by the remittance. So that's a huge money, right? Right. So... What you can say, almost 25% of GDP, that is more than 8 billion. 
So what what do you expect more people to do? Means go abroad, send money. Your family is there, and uh, the reason of having a family is there because they cannot take family out. Like you have seen in Korea, we I remember when I came to Korea, two thousand and six. At the time, around two thousand and six, I think there were four or five thousand Nepalese only, and now we have more than fifty five thousand. Can you imagine? So that's wow. just rising very quickly. Fifty-five thousand Nepalese. Yes, in Nepalese in Korea. That's a huge uh, number. So I, I want to back up a little bit because I mean, again, this is probably something that's so common knowledge to you, but I think it would be interesting for um, the listeners to hear about. So just okay. So you said this person, they're they're you know the country's struggling. It's hard to find jobs. Like one of the best ways is to go abroad and make money and send it home. Right, that the remittance economy. So what does that person do? Literally, like. Step by step, like how do they get to Korea? So they say, "Okay, I can't get a job in Nepal. I, I, I'm going to try to get to Korea and work oh, okay. because it's hard. Like yes, I, I think I want people to get a window into like what. Right. So, how, so how do those people end up? So what do they have to do? Yes, they have a choices. Like for example, those who are well educated, they try to get through the student visa. So mm. their target is not going to be Korea. They always choose, particularly these days, Australia has become the top destination for them. So mm. every year, like 20, 25,000, they plan to Australia. And then you can imagine maybe the UK, Canada, US, many other countries, European countries. Mm. So those remaining, and some people who cannot go those countries due to some limitations, maybe they think about going to Japan. I think the people you see uh, in, in, in Japan, the Nepalese people, mostly they are the students because mm. Japan doesn't allow, uh, like Korea, they do with the MOU that Nepalese people come to work there. So they are mostly the student. They come uh, on a student visa, particularly language students. But uh, the Japanese government policy, we call backdoor policy, means employing foreigners through those kind of student visas. So yes. you can see there. But in Korea, it's a totally different situation. And uh, this has much also to do with maybe history, because uh, if you bring worker here, so they are come here particularly for certain kinds of work, those works which uh, Korean people, they do not want to work in technique. And then when these people come, the second thing you can also imagine, like there are many people who are graduated, but mm. still they come. So the right. reason they come because you make big money here. That is one thing. Even if you are employed, Maybe from the perspective of Nepal, your living standard is very low. Not in Kathmandu, okay? Kathmandu is much more expensive than where I live now. Mm. But most of the countries, we can say. So the living standard is very low. So whatever you make there, you can make here in just a couple of hours or a couple of days. So your, your, your position is that I will go there, I make money, and then I will have some kind of plan. So, well, what I'm mean, going to just to circle back uh, again here. What, well, process, what is that right? person? Yeah, yeah what the, is that person in Nepal? What do they do? Like you said, do they still go have to go through middle people? Yes, is, is, yes, is there corruption cannot, involved? Or no, is because this, they can. No, there is no corruption these days to come to Korea. The, the, mm -hmm. This is what I told you. This is why the EPS system is working perfect. That's why right. we have no problem. So when you 
have if you plan to come to Korea, the first thing you have to do, you have to be among the countries which has signed MOU with Korea to bring the foreign workers. So Nepal is one of them. There are 15 or 16 countries, so Nepal is one of them. So that means legally you are allowed to work in Korea if you meet certain criteria. So the first criteria is you have to pass the language exam. So there are many language schools through which you learn and the Korean government with uh, uh, Ministry of Labor, we call HRD. So they have uh, set up such kind of uh, language testing system. So those who pass, many people pass, but among the top, if they hire people, like if they have a plan to bring maybe 6,000 or 7,000, so those people from the top list, they choose. Then you have an interview there. And after the interview, you if you pass, you have to wait and you can come. The good thing is that once you pass, you just pay your, your one-way ticket, nothing else. So that uh, means everybody can come as long as you meet the criteria. Uh, many people after their four years term, four year, 10 months term that first finish, they go back, they legally go back. So the, the less you have an illegal person here, you get more quota. So it means Nepalese people are uh, very much at the top. So that's why more people are coming uh, to Korea. So what what is the uh, what would be the average sojourn? Like I know again it can vary from Aleppo. Like if you just came to work at, at a factory or say um, in in, in Korea? Uh, agriculture, yeah. What for Nepali coming? Like what would be I the average time? Yes. So before you come, I think you you already filled your form for two uh, two places. So you have actually two choices. One, manufacturing. So if you are coming for manufacturing industries or you are going to work for the agriculture. So agriculture and fisheries, they also involve. However, most people prefer manufacturing because they pay good money and the working environment is very good. However, in agriculture sector, it's always blamed so much human rights violation. However, no choice because if you could not uh, make it uh, on manufacturing list, you have no choice, right? So right. this is how you come here. So the basic, they work like eight hours. They have to work. And uh, I think uh, uh, the money in Korea is not really high compared to uh, other countries, but you can save more money than other countries again because the expenses are very low. And almost everything is provided to you by the company owner. And Korea is one of the best destinations for foreign workers without a skill. Because you can make a huge money and this is a democratic country. And you at least you can enjoy a freedom. Yes, maybe to some people, maybe on the paper. However, in general, you can feel. And... And the other thing is you are not going to feel the heart that you feel when you go to the Middle Eastern countries or maybe the countries like Malaysia or uh, some of those uh, other Asian countries. So the money is very important for those people. So they think to save some money and when they go back, they want to do something at their want. However, I have also met many people uh, who were just wandering with a lot of money and they could not see any opportunity there because of this political crisis or maybe economic disaster that's going on. So they just uh, come back and they also uh, work again for like the next four years and 10 months. That is the maximum they can stay. 
So almost nine years. If you will live here nine years, you can save a good money. Right. Yeah. No. So, well, that's really interesting. And I really appreciate you kind of taking us through that because I think it is interesting to look at how this process has kind of evolved and developed in Korea in a way, moving towards more regularization and in, in some ways bringing uh, a population that was largely uh, in the shadows in terms of their legal standing and, and documentation and by kind of offering some regularization help to kind of make the experience much less um, kind of exploitive, right? I mean, that because yeah. clearly that was a was a major issue, not just in Korea, but with... I think uh, I many mean, places. It, well, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's just a classic power dynamic. You have mm. a vulnerable population that is seeking opportunities and you have a huge a much larger supply than demand that is mm. you know jobs that are available which give these employers huge amounts of power over this this population and without any sort of strict kind of oversight or or policies for governance it can can turn very um, ugly and I mean this is obviously for those who are in you know listening in the United States you know this has clearly been an issue in the United States for decades, um, mm. if not even longer, uh, in terms of the exploitation or taking advantage of people's gray areas in terms of their legal status as a way to extract wage concessions to not pay people. I think it, the story you're telling is that um, Korea has, over the last several decades, really taken a firm steps. But right. I think you know one thing that is, is interesting is just how much the politics of migration and immigration is um, at the heart of politics in Asia in a way that I don't think people think, you know, it's probably not one of the first things that comes to mind when people think of East Asia is migration and immigration. I mean, a lot of the international news, particularly the Western media focuses mm. on, like you said, South, North from Africa um, in the Middle East to Europe, from Latin America to the United States, right, has been, is, is often the focus or even from Southeast Asia to Australia. But these patterns and flows from places like Nepal to Korea, um, or, you know, the, the process of student visas and going to the United States or the UK is, is I think, something that is less on kind of the radar. And, and I think, you know, providing uh, the insights into how, you know, things that have changed, things that have remained the same, uh, has really kind of opened, I, I think, a lot of way towards understanding the kind of evolution of these processes in East Asia and in Korea more specifically. Well, uh, any final thoughts or, or observations you want to leave us with? I've, I've taken too much of your time already, Suvedi. I uh, really, no, really that's appreciate fine. it. Yeah, uh, well, thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for this talk. So mm. what I believe, like it is not uh, the one we thought or traditional migration pattern that we saw in the past. So it's moving, changing, like uh, maybe at the very beginning, we just talk about internal migration, then came international migration. But if we look recently, uh, the current patterns, what we can see that it's much more like a regional uh, regional. Uh, pattern is rising. So uh, it's, it would mean nothing we see like uh, Nepalese people moving to the United States or maybe the UK. Uh, it is also because when the, the concept of international security started to come into surface and many things changed, the cross-border things became very difficult and so much uh, maybe uh, so much of concern. So as a result, people always want to live in a place where they feel much more comfortable. So in mm. coming days, 
uh, I'm sure it will be more like regional. For instance, currently we see uh, mostly uh, Asian people, uh, even like Indians or maybe Chinese moving to Australia or moving to Japan or maybe Korea or maybe Singapore. So this pattern will be in every region. Like we can see people moving to maybe Brazil or Argentina or maybe Colombia from Latin America. And uh, also we see the same thing in Africa, people moving to South Africa. So this 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 trend we have already seen. So uh, it will be very much uh, important that how they create a kind of a regional regime to deal with uh, this kind of immigration issues because this is not only just to make you a part of that region, uh, it also becomes your duty and responsibility at the same time because as a regional group, as a member of region, you are supposed to open the border. At the same time, you are inviting something, so you have to um, be very much concerned about it. So how you manage and how you take these things uh, is going to definitely save the future migration pattern. So whether they will just be stuck within or maybe they will move outside. So this is what I believe. But uh, let's see where it goes, right? So right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, one last thing, one last question before, before uh, I let you get out of here. Um, thanks again for your time. This is, again, a hard question, and, and I'm just asking more for your broad impressions. But you you've talked about how um, Nepal has increasingly been become a country that heavily relies on migration and uh, remittance, remittance um, income yeah. uh, for for you know economic life and sustaining the economy in Nepal, which as you mentioned has has had some notable struggles in terms of governance. On, on balance, do you think this is a sustainable or or good kind of no. for for no no because uh, like. Uh, the first thing we have to understand, like every development, they have a step. I think you know the road to the growth theory, right? right? So when you say from moving from traditional to maybe professional, always have to take place. So we know the Korean example. We know other countries' example. They have a certain stage from where move. But if you look at the time and today, we have so much uh, high-tech, so much innovation. So that means you have to grow even quicker. That is one thing. And the second thing is that when you rely just on import, I think you are going to have the same fate that Latin American countries faced during the globalization. It is going to be the same. Means it is going to be the just a Dutch disease for Nepal. Because how long you can rely on others? How long you are going to get a job outside? At the end of the day, you have to go back and then you have to run your own economy. So the biggest problem is that there is no industrial revolution in my country. Still many people, they believe in uh, what we call uh, traditional farming, not much profit. Yes, changing, but the change is very slow. So what I believe, if people, they go outside, they learn something, they go back and they imply that, you need a kind of environment, whether it is uh, government support. Like if you want to do something, there is no insurance policy thing like that. So there is always a risk. So you made some money, you saved some money because to make uh, to invest, you need capital, right? And just doing a job in Nepal, you cannot make a capital. 
Right. So from mm. abroad, if you go, particularly people coming to Korea or maybe some developed countries, these people have some capital because they save some money. But they also know very well the good running, good smooth system that they spend their life in those countries. But when you go back to your country, you see that again the same problem because there is no rule of law. That is the worst thing going to make you always doubt that if I invest my whole uh, income or my whole saving, what will be my end? So you, you are just going to put to the sea, right? So right. this is the reason not many people they dare. However, some of their some of the people they did they have been successful. This is another story. But in general, if you look at the big picture, even uh, from my point of view, just imagine almost five hundred thousand people leave Nepal every year. More than five hundred thousand. That's a big wow. number. Yeah. Among them, among them. 30, around 20 to 30 pe the person people are also skilled people. Mm. So most of them are unskilled. But the data I have from the high school return is, that means these are the people who has a really good saving at the same time who has the skill, right? And this, the returnee skill are less than 13%. So that means, what do you expect? These people who are highly skilled, they go back, they see some problem, they just go back again. So that means how will you develop? So it is a kind of vicious circle. So until and unless there is established government, when there is economic growth taking place, and if there are some good policies that come into practice and that shapes the way uh, the output is today, whether it is agricultural output or maybe some industrial revolution coming there, then we can think of. The other countries are thinking about fifth revolution and we are still in the first stage. That is the problem. Well, Subedi, thank you so much. Uh, that, that really sketches out, I think, a lot of the dilemma um, that is involved where there's these short-term needs that are readily fulfilled by, you know, uh, remittance economy, but um, at the same time are damaging to opportunities to build some sort of domestic, long-term kind of sustainable growth model. And it, it makes me believe that uh, we're going to have to have you back um, to talk about um, some solutions. I know you spent a lot of time thinking about solutions to these issues. And um, I, I said we're, we've taken too much of your time already, but I, I'm certainly That's going fine. to Thank have you to have you back. For, it was also a great experience for me. Takor Suvidi, thank you so much for joining us here in the Caves of Altamira. Bye. Bye. Bye.